As we prepare for this morning's sermon, I invite you to pray with and for me. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is going to blow your mind, I'm sure, but I was sort of a weird kid. (laughs) I won't go into all of the family dynamics that I like to blame for that fact, but it took me a long time to figure out where I fit. Growing up, I was never the cool kid. I never had that many friends. I never felt like I found my people until I went to camp the year before I started seventh grade. Now, I've talked some during my time here at Decatur First about my love of camp. I am a camp person. If you have kids or you are a young person, I hope that you will consider summer camp. If resources are a challenge for you, let us know there are scholarships available. We have among the cream of the crop in terms of Christian camping in Camp Glisten here in North Georgia. I'm a big advocate for camping, especially Christian camping, because it wasn't until the bus from my hometown of Memphis drove through the gates of Camp Bear Track in Drasco, Arkansas, that I finally found my people. Now it took me a minute because the thing about not having your people is you don't know how to find your people. What I mean is that it was clear that I needed help, I needed support, and that help, that need for help meant that I acted in ways that made me need more help. It wasn't like I tried to burn the place down or anything, I was just pretty obnoxious all the time. And I will tell you, I have thought about this a lot over the years. I will tell you why that place changed my life. It is pretty simple, actually. Here it is. The counselors were paid to like me. I could be as obnoxious as I felt like I needed to be. And they didn't have to like it, but they did have to like me. They did it because that was their job. They were paid to do it. But you don't get rich being a camp counselor. They took that job because they were the kinds of people who over the course of their lives had found themselves in the presence of God. Who had in some way or another been transformed by that love. Who couldn't help but turn around and share it. They were Christians in the highest and the best sense of that word, and they had experienced the love of God. It is transformative, that kind of love. It certainly was transformative for me. It only took one year of being on the receiving end of that kind of love for me to start to get it. And though I don't always get it right, I hope that the rest of my life since that time has borne witness to just how much God loves each of us. In fact, I was so grateful to have received that love. I went back the next summer again. And again, that time, that summer to work. And again, and again, and again, for 10 years, I think, 
I worked at that camp. And it was during counselor orientation of my last summer, the summer between college and graduate school, that I wrote a letter that I tacked to the bulletin board in the counselor lounge. And in essence, here is what it said. This place is holy ground for me. The relationships that you have with the campers in your charge will change their lives if you let them. And so in the midst of a long, hot summer with kids who aren't always easy, I only ask that you remember that it is the difficult kids that need you the most. And that the reason that I come back to this place year after year is that I know what power that kind of relationship can have on a person because it had that power on me. I am told that in the years since, the directors of the camp read that letter to the counselors every summer before the campers arrive. I share this with you not because I am the hero of the story. I'm not. I'm pretty sure that Jesus is the hero of that story. And it is not lost on me that it took my being weird and difficult and obnoxious for me to experience that kind of grace. I share this story with you because I was on the receiving end of the kind of love that would not let me stay away. In fact, if it had been Jesus directly doing the healing and not my camp counselors, I'm pretty sure that I would have been the one who ran back and thanked him. And it wouldn't have been because I'm better at gratitude than anybody else. It would have been because I couldn't help it. That kind of love transforms a person. Now, if you have been a part of a church for any length of time, In a tradition that preaches the Christian scriptures, there is a better than even chance that you have heard a sermon preached about the story that we read this morning. The story of the ten men with skin diseases, probably leprosy, all of whom were healed by Jesus, and then were sent away to show themselves to the priests in the temple, ostensibly to be declared clean. Only one of them comes back. One of them comes back praising God for the gift of healing. I would wager that this story has been preached on so often that if you press on the wall of this sanctuary, if you push on it like a sponge, you will hear the whispers of 200 years of preachers seeping out, echoing Jesus' question, Where are the nine? Where are the nine? I suspect that those preachers would tell you to be grateful. And they're right, of course. Do be grateful. Gratitude is powerful. It's mysterious. It's trajectory-altering. When you are grateful, when you live in gratitude, you will find yourself doing things you'd never expected to do. You may well spend ten of the most amazing summers of your life sweating in Arkansas, of all places, taking care of somebody else's kids. Do be grateful. 
I guess I'm just not content to leave it there. I mean, of course you should be grateful. I was talking to somebody on church staff this week about this story. I told her I struggle with it a little bit. I love this story. And I love the idea of gratitude. Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays. I can take down a casserole. But I sometimes struggle with Thanksgiving as a topic for worship. Because you should be thankful, but if you leave it there, if you leave it at, isn't it good that we have what we have, we run the risk of being the very kind of people that Jesus decries in the very next chapter of the Gospel of Luke, right after this story. He talks about and sort of makes fun of the Pharisee who says, God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else, the crooks and evildoers and adulterers. I'm not even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I receive. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In other words, oh God, thank you for making me so wonderful. That's a prayer of thanksgiving. It's just not a particularly good one. And another thing. For as much as this story helps us understand that we should be thankful to God, I wonder, would anybody argue with that? Like, maybe you aren't feeling particularly thankful this morning. But if I said, anybody here feel like we shouldn't be thankful? I mean, nobody's going to raise their hand to that. Of course not. We know we should be thankful. We were created in love. And thank God for that fact. It all makes me wish that Jesus hadn't said, where are the other nine Now it's a dangerous thing when a preacher says, I wish Jesus hadn't said. But the problem isn't so much in what he is saying as much as it is in our remarkable human ability to take the message of Jesus and totally miss the point. When Jesus says, where are the nine? It is human instinct for each of us to say, well, yeah, where are those other nine? Don't they know how thankful they should be? Isn't it terrible that they aren't here? As if I'm really the one who was healed by Jesus and went to be cleansed by the priests and I deserve a medal for running back and thanking God and running back into the arms of Jesus as if I'm the hero of the story. I kind of wish Jesus hadn't brought them up at all the other nine because through our Western lens... The way that those of us in 21st century America read this story, it almost feels, it, uh, feels as if Jesus is talking about teams. The grateful team and the ungrateful team. And that's not his point at all. I mean, for one, let's not forget that all 10 of these people, not 90% of them, but all 10 of these people who were healed by Jesus were outcasts, pariahs. They were cast out of town on top of and because of the fact that they were dealing with a painful skin disease. And scholars tell us that when the Bible, when historians talk about leper colonies, often what they're talking about is not some planned community. 
They're not talking about Celebration Village for lepers. They're talking about groups of people with a painful disease who decide to move in together to care for one another because nobody else would do it. I have heard several of you in this church tell me the story of being a nurse or a healthcare worker during the height of the AIDS crisis. When people who had been cast out of polite society often cast out of their own families, usually communities of gay men, would form their own chosen families to care for one another because nobody else would do it. You start to think of things that way. Start to see the reality of the hell that these people lived through. And the us versus them, the grateful and the ungrateful, that just all falls away. It fades into the background. I mean, I would bet you everything I have that the nine who went to the temple to be declared clean by the priests, which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus told them they were supposed to do, those ten were certainly grateful. If the point of all of this is just you should be grateful, Jesus wouldn't have asked anything about where the nine went. I'm sure he knew what the answer was. They were doing exactly what he told them to do. In fact, as readers of this story, we don't even get the punchline. We don't even discover what makes this story so powerful until about halfway through it. After they leave the priests, after they're healed, after one of them starts running back, we discover he's a Samaritan. Luke nonchalantly slips that fact into the narrative. The one is a Samaritan. A foreigner, an outsider. The writer and priest Barbara Brown Taylor says of these ten that ten of them behaved like good lepers, doing what you would expect them to do. Only one, a double loser, behaves like a man in love. A double loser. Cast out of town because of his skin condition declared unclean by a society, terrified of people who were different, and he was a Samaritan, looked down upon by good, respectable people. If you wanted to be seen as respectable, you would not hang out with the Samaritans. People might talk. This, this is the person held up as the paragon of gratitude, of virtue. This double Loser. And I got to tell you, I've thought about this story as many ways as there are to think about it. I think I've sliced it up every way you can possibly slice it. And I just can't get to a place where I think that the point is the calling out of the other nine. Jesus never condemns them, He just asks where they are. I'm not even sure that it's fair to talk about this story as if it is a story about a lack of gratitude at all. I think, I think, this might be a story of the Gospel of Luke, of Jesus, 
holding up an example of what happens when the transforming love of God comes into contact with a double loser. The weird kid. The difficult one. And when he receives that love, he can't help but run back again and again and again and again. I mean, the other nine were healed. And once they were blessed by the priest, they could slip back into respectable society. I mean, you'd hope that they would gain some perspective through their ordeals. But if you hadn't known what had happened to them before they ran into Jesus, they could pass as respectable people, which is the same thing as being respectable people. But the one who came back and thanks Jesus, he couldn't pass. Not in that culture. The one who came back needed Jesus. I mean, really needed him. And when he needed Jesus, Jesus was there. Friends, at the end of the day, yes, be grateful. We should be grateful. I pray that I am appropriately thankful for all that's been given to me. But if we, the church, read this story and all we take away from it is the idea that we should be thankful, we have drastically missed the mark. In fact, I would argue we are not even in the same zip code as the mark. And so this morning, might I humbly suggest that the mark might be less in the Samaritan man's response, which I suspect he simply could not help, and more in revealing what the love of God looks like. I mean, could it be that the love of God, distilled down to its essence, is especially good news for those who feel left out. Could it be that for all of our fretting over the state of the modern church, for all of the fear of secularization and modernization and change, could it be that we, as God's holy church, have an opportunity to get back to first principles to find those people who don't feel like they belong. And let me tell you, as a former one of those people, that pool is deep. And to carry to those people the simple but life-changing and trajectory-altering message that no matter who you are or where you've been or who you love or what you have done, you are God's beloved child and you are loved by God us might it be consistent with the message of scripture that we God's church ought to be especially attuned to those who feel as if the church does not want them I mean aren't those the very people that Jesus so consistently heals I mean it sounds so simple 
that surely it can't be true. Surely it can't be true, the idea that those who are most in need of the love of the church will be the most receptive to it. I mean, if that were true, surely we would drop everything and we would run to those places and we would find those people, wouldn't we? I mean, we'd be telling them. That they're loved again and again and again and again and again and again. It's just so simple. Surely it can't be true. Can it? 